0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Ephesians chapter 1. This evening, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to take a break from the benchmark series because coming to the Lord's table, but also next Sunday night, Chris Seawright will be here reporting about their ministry in Cambodia, so I thought I'd just wait to start the next benchmark after that. So, Lord willing, on the 15th. I want to just really focus on one verse of Scripture as a, a way for us to uh, have our hearts prepared to come to the table tonight, and uh, I want to read that verse and then set the context for us and just, uh, just unpack it a little bit. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, referring to Christ or the Beloved, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, and New American Standard has a period there. Some of you may have, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Period, because that's one of the complexities of of this particular unit. Let me just set the backdrop. Verses three through fourteen are one long sentence in Greek, where. Paul is unpacking uh, the reasons why we should praise God because of the blessings we have in Christ in heavenly places. Verse three is really sort of like the topic sentence for, for all the rest of the verses. The blessed be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a way of expressing praise. So blessed be God or praised be God for all of these blessings that we have in Christ in heavenly places. And then it begins to to lay those out and uh, does so, uh, most think in sort of like, almost like three verses because there's like three choruses or refrains. At the end of verse six, it says, uh, first part of verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace. If you go down to the end of verse 12, uh, we were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory, and then, at the end of verse fourteen, to the praise of his glory so so three times Paul inserts some phrase about the praise of his glory, and most see that as the first part being uh tied to the Father's plan for redemption, and that's laid out in in three through uh three through five and then verse 6, uh, he mentions the beloved and then turns in 7 through 12 uh, to focus on him. That's why if you look through 7 through 12, uh, you'll see that pronoun mentioned a, a bunch, in him, and uh, mentioned again throughout there because these things are all found in Christ. What Christ has done is actually provided the basis for these blessings through the sacrifice of himself. And then verses 13 and 14 have to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So they're actually applied to us and we're sealed by the ministry of the Spirit. So it becomes uh, this this, uh, fantastic triune praise to God because all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. The Father's eternal plan, uh purchased by the sacrifice of the Son and applied by the work of the Spirit. And in each case it's to the praise of His glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace, to the praise of His glory. That's why God is to be blessed for all of these spiritual blessings that we've received in heavenly places. So so really you could I mean you could cover it all in one shot or since uh distinct ideas come in the form of subjects and verbs, Uh, we find in verse seven really a complete idea that's one part of this incredible spiritual blessing that's been bestowed on us in Christ. And that is surrounding the concept of redemption in verse seven. In him, we have redemption. There's the statement, right? The subject's we, and the verb is have redemption. Right, So this is a present possession of believers. You and I, if we're in Christ, in him, we have redemption. And that might uh, sit uh, really simply on us, but there is an element of which redemption is actually in the future as well. In this very same passage, look at the language in verse 14 referring to the spirit who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So there is a there is a sort of final outworking of redemption when God actually gathers up what he's purchased. But we actually already enjoy the benefits of that because we are those who were purchased we have this redemption that he's given to us. And and the language of redemption is a a language of release or freedom. Uh, We're purchased out of slavery or bondage. Uh, The scriptures talk about it in a number of different ways. Uh, For instance, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse. We, We have been ransomed or rescued from our sin In this particular case, the focal point is actually the forgiveness of sins, because listen to the verse again, or look at it. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So, redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses are are mutually explaining one another. In this verse, the focus of our redemption is that we have the forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses. So we were in bondage to sin, or in this case, trespasses, that God set the boundary for us of what we ought to do or ought not to do, and we violated that boundary. We trespassed. And those trespasses have consequences. There is a penalty attached to breaking the the law of God. We are found guilty because of that. And because of that, we are actually subject to that guilt and the judgment that it brings. In that regard, we were under the curse. We are, uh, by nature, chapter two would say the children of wrath. And God redeemed us. He bought us out of that. He purchased us and brought us out of debt to our sin, out of guilt because of our sin that brought condemnation. Under the power of sin, we've been rescued from it. We've been redeemed. We are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer subject to the penalty of our sin because we have been transferred from the power of Satan into relationship to God. We were held captive by him to do his will, but God purchased us and made us his own. And that's tied to his forgiving our sins because the penalty has been paid. And that leads us in the text to the price of that payment. Look what it says. In him, we have redemption through his blood. So so the price paid to redeem us. Is the blood of Christ, and um, without getting trying to get too technical on it, what we have to—I uh, was even thinking of it as we were singing tonight—is that we need to understand how that what that means, right? So, so um, there's a fountain flowing with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Or, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. And we might. We might actually take those poetic expressions and, and not understand them poetically and somehow think that actually like there's a, there's a pool of blood that we pass through, right? Or that there's a, a fountain still flowing with blood. And even, even tonight, one of the songs talked about it in present tense as if the blood is still flowing in that regard. Right. But biblically, the concept here is, is, uh, I mean, it's a figure of speech that represents the entirety of Christ's life. Because it goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus, where God says, the blood shall be offered on the altar because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right. So blood doesn't have any magic capabilities it actually is the life so what this text is saying is you and i receive forgiveness because christ gave up his life he died in our place his life was sacrificed on behalf of our sins and paid the penalty of death which we owe that's why the the rest of this book of ephesians can speak about the same thing with other ways in which it sort of summarizes the work of Christ for instance look over in chapter 2 and verse 16 and this one we easily grasp right verse 16 says might reconcile them both 216 might reconcile them both in one body to god through the cross all right so when you when you see that through the cross you don't think through the wood, right? What you think of is what happened at the cross, right? That Christ was crucified there. He shed his blood. He died to be the payment for sin. But for all of us, you know, we sang tonight, hallelujah for the cross. Because for us, we know what the cross represents. It is, in fact, for us, a, a, a metonym for the work of Christ, that he accomplished something for us at the cross. So so we would sing it with joy, knowing that when we say hallelujah for the cross, that that sings a whole lot better than hallelujah for the incarnation of Christ and his perfect righteousness on our behalf and his sacrificial death in our place and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension of the Father. That doesn't fit with the tune very well. Right? So what we've done is we've taken and, and we've, we've summarized all of that into what the Bible did. Right? He did this through his cross because that's what Paul's doing. Because he, he, if he repeated the entire theology of atonement every time he raised it, right? Our Bibles would be substantially bigger. Right. It wouldn't have fit all in chapter two and verse 16. But he says the cross. And you know what that means. Right. Because you have all the scripture that has told you the significance of the cross of Christ and his death on our behalf. And, and you would actually, uh, it would actually evoke for you, uh, understanding of things, right? If we were thoroughly immersed in, in the theology of the Old Testament, for instance, and the law given to Moses, we would know that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So when he says the cross, he's referring to Jesus becoming the curse for us so that we might be set free from it. When we hear through his blood, an Old Testament uh, a, 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 a heart saturated with the truth of the Old Testament would be hearing that's the offering up of his life as a sacrifice for sin. It's his death for us that secures these things. And that's why uh, look, over to, look over to chapter five and verse two. Paul can talk about it as also giving himself up Right? Let's start in verse 1. That's the beginning of the sentence. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And how did he do that? It was as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he handed himself over as an offering. Chapter 5, you're very familiar with. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's a part what I'd say is if if you knew nothing else that the Bible said and you read that phrase, gave himself up for her, you'd be going, what does that mean? But you're here and you know the rest of the story. So you read, gave himself up, and you merely go, that's the cross. That's shedding his blood for our sins. That's him laying down his life, right? Because these are ways in which we, you know, if I could put it this way, it's sort of like, you know, the, the old story about a diamond and all of its facets and the way you'd look at it and see its beauty from different angles, that's what the scriptures are doing when they use these uh, sort of shorthand summary statements. It was Christ giving himself up for us. It's the cross. It's through his blood that these things are accomplished. All right, so, so go back to chapter 1, verse 7. And what we have to think about here is that the price that was paid for our redemption, that we have been... Bought with a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that price, this text says, is the blood of Christ. Right? So our redemption is through the blood of Christ. And that's why the words forgiveness of trespasses are so clearly tied in here. Right? The thing that held us in bondage, the, the release and Freedom that we needed was caused by our sin. So when Christ died, he released us from those. He set us free from the bondage that we have to the the sin sin that we committed and its penalty. Notice now the next statement in verse 7. It says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So this provides the basis for all of this. And this is important. I mean, it's huge for Paul in the book of Ephesians, right? But, but we are released from bondage, not on a work furlough to pay our way back, right? It's not like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you a chance going to give you a second chance for you to sort of redeem yourself, right? You messed up, but now you're getting a second chance, right? Or you've been a good prisoner, so you're going to get out on good, you know, because of your good behavior. No, this is entirely based on grace, which he highlights two ways. First, the abundant source of it, that's the riches of his grace. Right? So, so he's talking about the grace there and he describes it as the riches of his grace. So, so if you're thinking about the grace of God, you should be thinking of the wealth of it. There's, there's like a massive vault of grace. That has no back wall to it, right? There is riches to his grace. So there's this abundant source of grace, the riches of his grace, but also then an abundant supply of it. Look at the first part of verse eight, which he lavished on us, right? So, so think of, think about that when we, because here's the uh, both our our conscience—actually, I'll take the word "both" out. All of these conspire against us, right? Our conscience might consistently shout at us about our guiltiness. Our our pride might struggle with the kind of payback men- mentality that I mentioned, right? I messed up so badly. I have got to, I've got to pay it back somehow, right? That I'm a debtor and I'm going to work hard to pay off that debt. Okay, I'm going to do everything I can to show God that I was worth what he gave me, right? And then we've got the devil who's the accuser who will constantly say, you can't go back to God again. You messed up again. How many times do you think God is going to forgive you for this? How much do you think you can get away with? Right? And and, and here's, here's what we need to see. There's... There's no, there is no shortage of grace. It's not like, well, you know, God's grace is only, I mean, it's like a, a credit card and I've sinned past the limit of my credit card. Like I, I'm out of, I'm out of credit. No, it's the riches of his grace. Because it's tied to the very character of God, he's the God of grace. We would describe his grace as being infinite. It's not just like a a set figure over there of God's grace. There's an abundant supply of it. But also we might think, well, man, he's not going to. You know, he, he's, he's going to go, okay, I'll cut you slack this time, but don't mess up again. And this text says he lavished it on us. I mean, he has poured more grace on us than you and I can comprehend. I mean, he, he has, we sing occasionally, a grace that is greater than some of my sins. Grace that is greater than most of my sins. No, it's grace that is greater than all of my sin. Right? He, he has poured out, he has lavished on us grace upon grace in Christ. Because where does it come? It comes through his blood. Right? That's what Paul says, if, if God didn't spare his son, but gave, up, gave him up for you. Will he not freely with him give us all things? I mean, do you really think God's grace is going to run out? Do you think he gives it out stingily? No, he lavishes it upon us. It is greater than all our sin. Now go back to the first words of verse 7, because here's the access to all of this. In him. Right. All of this has been, the end of verse 6, freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It is in him we have these things. And that's why verse 3 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right. So, so all of this comes to us freely from God. And it comes through his son. It doesn't come because of us. I mean, the very, very nature of grace excludes that. If it was that God looked at us and said, you know, you didn't quite get that repentance thing right yet. So keep working at it. And then I'll give you my grace or you didn't quite do enough yet to show me that you really mean business, so keep after it, and then I'll give it to you. That would not be grace. Right? And that would put the center of it in us instead of it being in him. Right? It is in Christ. That we have been lavished with his grace. It is in him we have this redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through his blood. It is, it is from start to finish and all the way through about Christ. So, so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, right? He's, He's giving us a cup that's the symbol of his blood. He's giving us a wafer that's the symbol of his body. Both of those are actually showing us how he purchased this redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And what we're supposed to remember as we think about those things is him, is him, because it's in him that we have all these things. It is constantly the message of scripture for us to look outside of ourselves to Christ because Christ is sufficient. His work accomplished it. My forgiveness is rooted in the free and full forgiveness that comes from the grace of God, which has an abundant source and an abundant supply. The, the table, sure, should be a time of reflection, potentially introspection, right? Especially if we know we've been uh, walking contrary to the will of God. But but it really is supposed to be a time where we just stand amazed again that, that God would be this kind to me, a sinner. That Christ would guarantee my salvation because he purchased it with his blood. That forgiveness is not that God wiped out the slate back here, but I have, to, I have to wipe out the rest of it. That he's wiped it out. It's, it's as far as the east is from the west. It's buried in the depths of the deepest sea. He's placed it between, between the small of his back. You know, the place where you can never see? That's what he's done. And the omniscient God will remember them against us no more because Jesus paid it all.